Residents of Cochrane, Alberta have a water emergency. Five people killed, sixth person shot himself dead after something that police are calling an intimate partner violence event. Ontario's government wants the federal government to drop its environmental assessment on two proposed projects. An investigation into the impacts of sugarcane burning shows how black and brown communities in Florida have to live with the impacts of what is called black snow. And Russia says it's ready for more sanctions. Good morning. It's Wednesday, October 25th. I'm Nora. Here are your headlines. Today, we start in Cochrane, Alberta. CTV's Michael Franklin and Brendan Ellis are reporting that water levels are very low in the community's reservoirs, and some residents risk running out of water. A contractor punctured a sewage and water line, which caused the system to lose a lot of water. The town declared a state of emergency, and residents have been asked to conserve water. After the city put on water restrictions, though, they saw the single highest day of water usage in October. The psychology of local residents is such that asking them to conserve water is not going to work and may lead to everyone having no water. The sewage leak, which receives pretty little attention in the article, dumped enough sewage into the river that officials said it was quote-unquote significant. Next to Sault Ste. Marie, where a man killed three children and presumably a partner or an ex-partner in an incident that is being called, quote, intimate partner violence, unquote. But what I just wrote there, that a man killed his family, is all couched in weasel words in the article. In fact, you have to read until paragraph five, which is a new section, to find out that this isn't the murder of just five people, including three children, with no relation to one another. The five people were found dead at two homes. They found a 41-year-old dead, a 45-year-old who was injured by a gunshot wound, both at different residences, and then a 44-year-old who died from shooting himself. And there were three children who were also shot and killed, age 6, 7, and 12. But the reader needs to read between the passive voice from the Sioux police to make these connections. Sure, we don't know if this is a father, an ex, a new partner, and children, or if this is a father, a current partner, a sibling, and two kids, and a cousin. But this level of detail isn't what's necessary. What is necessary is to name these things directly. That there was a man, I'm assuming, not even that is said, who murdered his family and relations. And honestly, there's no reason for the police to be tight-lipped on this. The person who did the murder killed himself in this situation. So there's no there's no trial. There's no information to protect. You literally can tell us everything that you know about the individuals, including their genders, to give us an idea of what we're talking about here. But the police don't give us that. In the unbylined article from CBC, it goes on to quote the local chief of police, Hugh Stevenson, who urges people to watch out for each other. And if someone is struggling, they should reach out for help. He also said that, quote, this is not consistent with Sault Ste. Marie, unquote, which, uh, sorry to burst your bubble, but uh, femicide isn't exactly rare. What the article is badly missing is how many femicides or intimate partner deaths there have been in the past year, whether in the Sioux itself or in Northern Ontario or in Ontario or in Canada. 
anything, anything. It also says nothing about the exacerbating conditions that make this violent possible. There's no structural analysis in this article at all, just that if this guy had asked for help rather than reaching for a gun and shooting his family, they'd all still be alive. But of course, the thing about murderers is that if we expect them to stop themselves, if we expect them to just say, whoa, 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 I'm about to murder someone, everybody, well, uh, then we'll always have murder. Next to the government of Ontario, they are asking the courts to stop the federal government's Impact Assessment Act that is set to examine the environmental impacts of the proposed Highway 413 and construction of a new Ontario place. In the first sentence, Alison Jones from the Canadian Press calls the law impugned, which I had to look up to make sure I understood, which I did. It means that it's been widely attacked. It's, I guess, insider speak, because I personally have no idea about this law being impugned or loved or derided or whatever. It's a bit of a surprise to the reader. Um, And so I'm in search for information about the impugning of this act, which does not come in the article. Anyway, aside, let's continue. The Supreme Court of Canada offered an opinion that federal laws that try to gauge environmental impacts are constitutional if used for something in provincial purview. But as an opinion, it didn't stop the reviews from happening. And so Ontario's Attorney General Doug Downey has asked the courts to rule formally that the Impact Assessment Act cannot take a decision on the 413 or Ontario place. Downey argued that this was creating confusion, which is bad because Ontario is, quote, growing at a remarkable speed, unquote, and therefore really needs Ontario Place to have a private spa. Stephen Guibault, the federal environment minister, said that the opinion will make the feds tighten the law so that it's constitutional. He applied the act to the proposed Highway 413 because it runs through areas that will threaten three species. It's also a very stupid project, and it's where I'm from, and I know where it cuts through, and maybe knowing all this stuff makes me biased. I don't know. Anyway, Ontario's promising to go ahead, feds are promising to go ahead, and they'll just continue, I guess, going ahead. Next, to an investigation from Mother Jones about the impact that sugarcane burning has on black communities in South Florida. Each year, from October to March, farmers set fire to more than 400,000 acres of sugarcane. The investigation from Rochelle Marina and Kendall Hubbard reports that they do this to prepare to harvest the cane. But the neighborhoods that surround these fields have to deal with the byproducts of the fires falling ash from the sky, smoke, and ash that darkens their houses, and the towns are predominantly black. They talk with Christine Louisjean, who is from Belle Glade, but who's moved to university, where she's organizing to stop the practice of burning sugarcane. The locals call the ash that is created by burning sugarcane black snow, and Belle Glade is in the heart of the United States' sugarcane industry. Belglade, where more than 60% of residents are black, more than 26% are Latino, is also the poorest town in Florida, and they live under the thumb of this industry. Farmers have been burning sugarcane for more than a century. They burn off the leaves, and that makes it cheaper to transport to market. White communities have mobilized to ensure that the sugarcane burning doesn't impact them, and so it's the predominantly black and brown communities that have to live with the respiratory illnesses and other side effects coming with living under this black snow. 
I strongly encourage you to read this investigation. It's much longer and goes into the alternatives to burning sugarcane and the racism embedded in resistance to change. And finally, to Russia, who has told the world, quote, bring on more sanctions, unquote. Okay, I should have put that in quotes because it's not exactly that. Al Jazeera is reporting that Russia claims that their economy has navigated Western sanctions so well that they're ready for more. That is actually what the article says. The country's leadership claims that sanctions have boosted its domestic economy and industrial production. Not all of Russia's economy has been sanctioned by Europe, though. The EU Observer reports that 34 quote-unquote strategic or critical raw materials are still being exported as normal. Only the UK has banned copper, aluminum, and nickel. Since Russia invaded Ukraine, Europe imported nearly 14 billion euro worth of critical raw materials from Russia. The raw materials are important for the airline industry, specifically building planes, but also to achieve carbon neutrality. Those are your headlines for Wednesday, October 25th. I'm Nora. You know what, folks, in case you're interested in all the gear questions that sometimes swirl around podcasts, I usually record this on a USB microphone that is a Yeti, and the Yeti's USB access port is not working. And so every morning, it's a little bit like microphone roulette. If you ever wonder, hmm, why would Nora get this episode out at, I don't know, 845 versus 849 versus 902, sometimes the difference is literally me fighting with the Yeti microphone. And so as I was recording this, I had the same fight and had to switch to my Audio Technica, which is my on the road microphone. I think I like the sound of the Yeti more. If you have an opinion on this, definitely let me know. But I will fix this problem as soon as I can. And in case you're also wondering, I don't use either of these microphones to record Sandy and Nora, which if you listened to yesterday's episode, you may have heard some cable problems in the sound recording. Folks, I am on top of this. This is all that I think about is microphones and recording. And I want to deliver you the most authentic, the deepest, the most full sound that you can get. Because no one wants to hear the news if it's flat. You are listening to this podcast at sandyandnora.com on the Real News Network podcast feed or wherever you get your podcasts. As I say, I'm recording this on an Audio-Technica USB microphone. There's no phantom power here, folks, and maybe you can tell. (laughs) I hope you have a wonderful Wednesday and I will talk to you tomorrow.